in his book, Media Unlimited, the author shares a parable about a customs officer who regularly would observe trucks pulling up at the border, always the same driver, and he always was a little bit suspicious. And so the first time, he politely asked the driver to step out so that he could search the vehicle. He searched and searched and removed panels and looked under seats, but in the end, uh, the customs officer couldn't find anything suspicious. And so despite his hesitations, he went ahead and waved the driver through until the next week when the same driver would arrive. And this happened again and again. Every week over many years, the officer would search sometimes different trucks and he, he just couldn't find anything. And so every week over the years, technology advanced. So you have x-rays, you have different types of heat recognition and the customs officer would leverage all of this technology each week with this driver in different trucks and, and never once could he find something illegal or a piece of contraband or anything and it really bothered him. Until finally after many years, the officer was ready to retire. So he goes to his post, the man comes along once again per the usual and he looked at him, he said, sir, listen, I just have to level with you. This is my last day on the job. We've done this routine for a number of years and I just have a suspicion that you are smuggling something. But I just, I just can't figure out. I just don't know what it is. And it's gonna kill me. It's gonna drive me crazy if I retire not knowing what it is. There's nothing I can do to get you in trouble at this point. It's my last day. Would you please tell me how you are doing it and what over all these years you've been smuggling? The driver paused, looked to the left, to the right, leaned outside of his car window and with a bit of a wry smile said, trucks. <laughs> Sometimes the thing that we need to see the most is the thing that's like right there, right in front of us, right? And the same is true of the Christian life. That lesson that we need to learn, that next step in our growth, it's right there, but for whatever reason, we just, we just miss it. And so this morning, we're gonna continue along uh, in our series from old to new to you, and, and we'll consider what should be, or more specifically, who should be one of the most obvious and vital and essential elements to the Christian life. And yet, a person who is often missed, overlooked, and even to a different degree, misunderstood. This morning, through the scriptures, we consider together the person and work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinitarian Godhead who shares fully in the divine nature and essence with God the Father and, and God the Son. So in thinking about the Holy Spirit, what are some of the ways that we miss or misunderstand his work? What's his role among the people of God? Not just today, but, but in the Old Testament in the New Testament, and of course, carrying all the way through to those of us in this room or, or even watching online today. Those are the questions we seek to pursue with God's help 
And as we've experienced from the previous sermons in this series, let me just say we'll be all over the scriptures today, so don't feel the need to be open in every passage. We'll have most of them up on the screen behind me. Uh, I will ask you to turn one or two places with me, but we want to to help you to see the consistency and continuity, and also in this case, some of the distinctions In all of the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, the Holy Spirit, for example, didn't just show up at the baptism of Jesus. In fact, he's present right from the beginning of creation, the second chapter of the Bible. He's he's hovering over the face of the waters. He's referenced as God creates human beings when God said, let us make man in our image and our likeness. And so as we think about the ministry of the Spirit from Genesis to Revelation, we'll look at seven ministries of the Spirit. There are certainly more. This is not an exhaustive list, but for the time that we have, that will be our goal for the morning. And one of the first ways that we see the Spirit active in the Old Testament is through his work of revelation. Revelation, I say revelation, and many of you think of the last book of the Bible, the one that nobody understands. That's not actually true, and it's not actually what I mean. When we say revelation, we are simply referring to God's gracious and accommodating work of making himself and his will known. And and one of the roles of the Spirit in the Old Testament was making God known through the specific revelation of God's word. We see it very practically played out in the lives of the prophets. For example, Ezekiel chapter two, verses one and three says, and he said to me, son of man, stand on your feet and I will speak with you. And as he spoke to me, the spirit entered into me and set me on my feet and I heard him speaking to me and he said, son of man, I will send you to the people of Israel. So the source of God's word to Ezekiel the revelation would eventually come to God's people. The source was the Holy Spirit. And there are just loads of other examples we could give from Balaam to Isaiah, from Saul to David. But interestingly, one of the most helpful passages in understanding the Spirit's work of revelation in the Old Testament is in the New. In 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 20, we read that knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And I just think this is a super helpful word picture, right? The prophets were carried along by the Spirit. It's a helpful word picture not only because the word Spirit for the Holy Spirit in both Testaments actually means something like breath or wind, but it helps us understand the way in which the Spirit moved or carried along the prophets to deliver the word of God to his people. I mean, you think about a a sailboat for a minute. A sailboat without any wind isn't going very far. But when the wind kicks up and the sails are deployed, the boat is moved from one place to, to another. What's more here is that the Spirit's work in the Old Testament is actually not limited just to the words of the prophets. In fact, in the full context of 2 Peter 1, uh, we see that the word of the prophets or the prophetic word is really just another way of referencing the whole of the Old Testament scripture, which kind of rounds out this idea and leads to a second way the Spirit was active in the Old Testament, and that was through his ministry of inspiration. In other words, The Holy Spirit of God inspired not just 
the actual words of the prophets, but the entire Old Testament scripture. You certainly get an allusion to this in 2 Peter 1, and you see confirmations throughout the scriptures. For example, the life and ministry of Jesus. Throughout his life, Jesus held the Old Testament in the highest regard. From his own personal life, you know, his temptation in the wilderness to his public teaching and ministry, Jesus would regularly affirm and, and reference the Old Testament as the very word of God. Throughout the New Testament, we see these confirmations, a passage that you may know very well, but we should look to it in any case, 2 Timothy 3, 16, which says that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. We could talk at this point about how the New Testament certainly bears witness to itself as the inspired word of God, and it was, but remember the immediate context here is pointing us back to the Old Testament. And even in 2 Timothy 3, we have again this language of breath or wind, the spirit being the genesis or the dynamic force behind the scripture. And you know, if nothing else this morning, I hope this changes the way that you think about the Old Testament and value it. Because there's actually some uh, today, even sadly churches and pastors that say we ought to unhitch from the Old Testament. Right, it's just, it's just too hard to understand. I mean, what, what do you do with Leviticus? You know, I mean, what? Doesn't it paint God in kind of a light that's just not real comfortable or inspiring for people? And yet, we know that our God is immutable. He's unchanging. And in that sense, he has always and will continue to reveal himself and his will through all the counsel of his inspired word. So the Spirit reveals, he inspires. A third work we see uh, in the Old Testament is the Spirit's ministry of empowering. Empowering particular people for a particular time and task. A lot of examples we could give. There's several actually found in the book of Judges. One in chapter three in verse 10 tells us that the Spirit of the Lord was upon him, a man named Othniel. You may not even recognize him. He judged Israel, went out to war, and the Lord gave Cush, king of Mesopotamia. We're on a first name basis, I just call him Cush. <laughs> king of Mesopotamia into his hand. Similarly, in Judges 6, a more familiar character, maybe Gideon to you, uh, this says that the spirit of the Lord clothed him for the work, and we know that God used the weakness of Gideon to overcome the strength of God's enemies. And it's really interesting to me, at least in these couple of examples, that, that God's spirit empowered pretty ordinary, unassuming guys. And, and they were facing pretty extraordinary challenges. And, and at least for me, that's really good news because most days uh, I, I feel pretty unassuming and pretty ordinary. You know, like another Tuesday at the office, Another Thursday, cleaning up dishes and doing laundry and putting kids to bed and all those types of things. I mean, you get in those moments and you wonder, what could God possibly do that was exceptional or extraordinary in these moments? But what the Old Testament shows us is that when the Spirit of God empowers a person, extraordinary things are possible. And it's remarkably humbling too, right, to know that 
that it's not because of my own wit or strength or position in life that I can really accomplish anything of substance, certainly for the Lord, that it's the work of the Spirit. Now, of course, we know the Holy Spirit also empowered kings, right, and leaders and prophets, but I really think Zechariah 4 and 6 sums it up nicely, which says, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And at this point, it might be helpful to pause because it's helpful to think about both the similarities and some of the differences regarding the ministry of the Spirit between the Old Testament and the New Testament because in as much as the Spirit would empower a particular person for a particular task for a particular time in the Old Testament, his empowerment of New Testament believers would come at a whole nother level of both proximity and permanence. It's actually something that the Old Testament anticipates. In fact, the one place I want you to turn in your Bibles with me today is Ezekiel chapter 36. It's about halfway through your Bible, maybe a little bit more than halfway. It's kind of a good midway point to hang on to. Ezekiel 36, we'll begin by reading in verse 22 and then we'll, we'll drop down just for the sake of time to verse 26. Ezekiel 36 beginning in verse 22 says this. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. Now let your eyes drop down to verses 26 and 27. And I will give you a new heart. In a new spirit I will put within you. I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So in the Old Testament, in other words, the spirit would come upon certain people but, but this promise, the promise of Ezekiel 36 speaks of a day when God would actually put his spirit not just upon but within his people. And the term that we use for this is the spirit's ministry of indwelling. The Holy Spirit of God actually indwells any and all who would put their faith in the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. Jesus himself spoke of this. We heard a lot about this as we went through our series in John's gospel, but just to reemphasize, John chapter 14, Jesus says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Later in verse 17, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Later in the New Testament, Romans 8, the Apostle Paul says it this way, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells, you guessed it, in you. And, and there are just a slew of, of implications regarding the spirit indwelling individual believers and the church more broadly. I mean, indwelling means that God has done more than just come near to you. I mean, that would be a lot on its own. 
but he's actually indwelling you, Christian, right now. And as we try to wrap our minds around indwelling, we, we start to put the pieces together and see a fuller picture of God's work across redemption history. We might say it this way, that the Holy Spirit supplies God's dynamic power and divine presence in your life and in the church. The Holy Spirit of God, the third member of the Trinity, provides a dynamic power and a divine presence for you and for the church. And in doing all of this work this week and all of these passages, I really started to think about like, what is it that we really need in life? Like what's the short list of things that, that really are necessary? And, and I really think this combination of power and presence rises pretty high to the top of the list. Think about it, right? We're finite, dependent beings. We're limited. And yet we're constantly at war with our own sin, with selfishness, with the enemy of our, our souls. The days are often long, the nights are often short, and so we need power, real strength and power. On the other hand, we're also beings that need security. We need assurance and community because we experience the whole range from loneliness to longing. We experience insecurity and and instability and uncertainty, and so we need presence, real presence. And for the Christian, it is the Holy Spirit who provides both the dynamic power and divine presence that we need. But as I think about that concept, the Spirit empowering and indwelling, like he's in there, you can't help but wonder, like, what is he doing in there? What is he actually doing? How is he actually doing it? And, and, and what's it ultimately leading to? And to answer those questions, we look to some of the more specific ministries of the Holy Spirit across into the New Testament. And two works that we'll kind of pair together here are regeneration and sanctification. Big words, it's okay, we're gonna unpack them. But we'll pair them together because regeneration and sanctification are kind of like the two-sided coin of the Christian life. Regeneration is this initial work of new birth by the Spirit. It's the new birth that Jesus talks about at length with Nicodemus in John chapter three. We don't have time this morning, but if you want, go read it this week. And it's also the giving of the new heart that we read about earlier in Ezekiel chapter 36. The giving of a new heart, a heart of flesh, and it's the giving of a new life and new heart that we hear from Paul in Titus 3. Hear these words beginning in verse 4. Paul says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. You know, especially to those of you who might be here this morning that would not identify with Christianity. You'd say, I'm kicking the tires, I've got some questions, like what is this really all about? Let me just point here to the fact that the depth of our sin and depravity as human beings is so great that it requires much, much more than just a tune-up. 
The essence of Christianity is not about turning over a new leaf. It's about receiving a new birth. Everything must be remade. And this is what the Spirit does in regeneration. He replaces that heart of stone with a heart of flesh, a heart that's actually capable of true affection toward God, true and sincere obedience, and a heart that generates a response of sincere faith and repentance, which we might call conversion, all the work of the Spirit. Now, where regeneration represents, in a sense, the beginning of the Christian life, sanctification represents both a positional shift to setting apart for God, but also the ongoing process of refinement that takes place throughout the Christian life. This is the constant work of the Spirit in the life of the Christian. It's, this is seen in places like Romans 8 and Galatians 5. We'll look at Galatians 5 as our example where Paul says, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Later in verse 22, he says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And in verse 25, if indeed we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. This is the ongoing grind of the Christian life. And, and further evidence, again, that it's the Spirit who provides both the dynamic power and the divine presence of God in our lives. He begins it through regeneration and he sustains it through sanctification in an ongoing fashion. I think of, of an author, John Stevens, who recalled a time when he visited Italy, beautiful Italy, a place I would love to visit someday. And when he was there, he observed what the renowned Renaissance artist and sculptor Michelangelo called the prisoners. The prisoners are located in Italy in what's called the Hall of Prisoners. And, and these were figures that Michelangelo originally planned to use at the tomb of Pope Julius. But for one reason or another, uh, he abandoned the project midway through and never actually finished these sculptures. And as you look at them, there, there's kind of this uncomfortable sense of turmoil and struggle because there's like a, a hand here and the torso of a man there, and like half a face here, and a leg there, and, it, and it's almost like they're trying to break out and escape and become ultimately what the artist wanted them to be. Author Theodore Roeder looked on the prisoners and made these profound comments. He said, when I look at these partial figures, they stirred up in me a deep longing to be completed, an ache to be set free from that which distorts and disguises, imprisons and inhibits my humanness, my wholeness. But with those statues, I am the same. I cannot liberate myself. For that, I need the hand of another. Christian, you have the hand of another. You have been given the sanctifying gift of the Spirit of God. And so please hear this. When you are in the depths of temptation, when you are at the end of your rope and drowning in hopelessness, when you are on the edge of what seems like an impossible decision that you have to make for you and for your family, 
When you are suffering in a season of uncertainty, know that God the Spirit is present with and in you and and in that moment, he is still sanctifying you. He's empowering you to overcome sin. He is grieving and convicting when temptation wins the day. And, hear this, he is remaining. He is remaining to comfort and to guide and to teach and to heal and to restore. The Holy Spirit indeed provides God's dynamic power and divine presence for your life and for the church. So to this point, we've talked, I think primarily, mostly, about the work of the Spirit in the lives of individual believers, and this is certainly right, but as Pastor Kyle so helpfully reminded us last week, the Spirit not only ministers and dwells within individuals, he also does so corporately in the church. And as we think about the Spirit's corporate work, we would be remiss if we did not spend some time talking about the Spirit's ministry of unification. Not one we talk about often enough, the Spirit of God in the way in which he brings unity to the people of God. You know, Acts chapter two represents what might be one of the most unifying events in all of human history. You might know it well. Acts chapter two, fulfilling the words of the prophet Joel when God said he would pour out his spirit on all flesh. It's, it's what I've heard our friend Tony Payne call the democratization of the spirit. You know, I often think about Pentecost and what happened at Pentecost purely in terms of the Spirit's power. And that's right, but that's not all. Because part of the marvel of Pentecost is not only about power, but about unity. Joel's prophecy said all flesh, all types of people. And it's listed, old, young, men, women. Guys, this is the first century. This is revolutionary stuff. Servants, Ethiopian eunuchs, Philippian jailers, Greek philosophers, Jews, and Gentiles. Folks, this was one of the great controversies of the church in the first century. How in the world could all of these cultural, ethnic, social outsiders become insiders? How could they be included? And the answer is because of the unification of the Spirit of God. I love this from 1 Corinthians 2 and verse three. Paul says, for in one Spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one Spirit. This fires me up, y'all, listen. There is no class system among followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no second tier or baptism or blessing of the Spirit that's only available to the spiritually elite, those who ascend to the chain and the top. All are baptized. All are immersed into one unified body of Christ. I wish we had more time to spend in 1 Corinthians 12 because this is his ongoing admonishment as it relates to the spiritual gifts. He says, listen, there's a variety of gifts but the same spirit. He said, to each is given 
the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. In other words, I don't care how gifted you are. If you are not leveraging those gifts for the common building up of the church, and dare I say, this church, your church, in the words of Paul, I am nothing more than a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. I wanna camp here for just a minute longer. One more example, it's too good, from Ephesians 4. Paul says, I urge you, this is important, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all, listen, humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Do you see it? Unity is something given to the people of God by the spirit of God and we are commanded urgently to be eager to maintain it. And maintenance takes everything this passage gives us, humility, gentle, patience, bearing with one another. In other words, work. You wanna maintain your marriage? You better get ready to work. You wanna build your retirement portfolio? You wanna tend your garden and grow some stuff this summer? You better get ready to work. And if you want to maintain the unity of the spirit, we need to get ready to work. You know, this week, June 19th, which was yesterday, or Juneteenth, was officially made a federal holiday, much to my joy. Juneteenth is the name given uh, to Emancipation Day by enslaved African Americans in Texas in 1865. Tragically, uh, horrifically, it took over two years for the news and for the implications of the Emancipation Proclamation to reach the state of Texas. Uh, But on June 19th, 1865, Union Major General Gordon Granger read General Order Number Three throughout the town of Galveston. It said this, The people of Texas are informed that in accordance with a proclamation from the executive of the United States, all slaves are free. This involves an absolute equality of personal rights and rights of property between former masters and slaves. So Juneteenth is a celebration of freedom and of unity. It points to the reality that we Christians understand that every human person has inherent value as an image bearer of God and thus repudiating the evils of enslaving people, of racism, of human oppression of any kind. And while Juneteenth was was certainly an important day in the life of our country that helped to, to move us one step closer to unity, it would not be the last. From Jim Crow era segregation to the Civil Rights Act, from redlining to ongoing criminal justice reform, this conversation and reality continues in our country even today. And and brothers and sisters, my exhortation to you, my hope and prayer is that we as a church embrace the opportunity to maintain and to display what real unity looks like 
I mean, as conversations in our country around race and reconciliation and justice continue, I pray that we're bold and, and courageous enough to lay aside the politicization of this issue the bad actors, all of the presumptions and presuppositions, particularly of fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, and do the hard work of maintaining unity, of engaging, of lamenting, of listening, of speaking truth. You're having conversation with another brother and sister in Christ over this issue and they mention the word justice or reconciliation that you don't jump to the conclusion that they're a closet Marxist or devotee of critical race theory. On the other side, when another brother or sister mentions sin and personal responsibility or their support of law enforcement, that you don't jump to the conclusion that they're a closet racist or that they hate refugees we can and must do better than that because the world is watching the unity of the spirit. And it does beg an important question because listen, I'm not naive. These are complicated issues. Unity does not mean uniformity. Unity does not mean that Christians cannot have healthy honoring biblical disagreements around bigger issues and so we have to press a little further and say what is the central point of our unity? Is there a common aim that we can all lead from and toward? And I think the answer is yes and I think the answer to that question comes in the final ministry of the Spirit that we'll look at today and that is his ministry of glorification. More specifically, the glory and glorification of the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, as a unified people, diverse in our gifts and our opinions, but unified nonetheless, we center our focus and our resources and our mission and our aim to the glory of Christ, full stop. And the reason that we are able to do this, and please don't miss this, the reason that we're able to do this, both in desire and in deed, is because the Spirit of God is also working toward the same end. He is pointing us to Jesus and his glory. We see it all over the Bible, particularly in John's Gospel. Chapter 16 and verse 13, Jesus says, when the Spirit of truth comes, he'll guide you into all truth. And then in verse 14, he will glorify me. For he'll take what is mine and declare it to you. Earlier on, he says, the spirit whom the father will send in my name, he's going to teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. So over and over and over again, we see the Holy Spirit pointing us to Jesus, championing the glory of Jesus. And friends, this will continue every day. Tomorrow, the next day, and the next day, until the final day, that day when Jesus will return in glory and when every tribe and tongue and nation will declare his supreme glory and lordship. It's the day we long for. It's the day we anticipate. And what's incredible is that we anticipate the ultimate glory of Jesus along with the Spirit himself. We see it so clearly in the end of the Bible, 
We saw the Spirit in Genesis 1-2. We see him again in Revelation 22. This is amazing. A handful of verses from the final chapter in words of the Bible. The Spirit and the bride. Listen again. The Spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Listen, the Holy Spirit supplies God's dynamic power and divine presence in your life and in the church. And in the end, in the very end, after we walk and crawl and fall and submit to and fellowship with the Spirit, in the end, Jesus will be glorified. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let me pray for us. Father, we lay ourselves bare before you today. We confess our fallenness, our brokenness, our sinfulness. We confess our negligence toward the work of your spirit. We pray that you will forgive us for the times when we have grieved him. We pray that you will forgive us when we have quieted his gentle but clear voice of conviction. We pray that you will forgive us for the times when we have walked not according to or by the spirit but by the desires of our own flesh. And we thank you for your promise to dwell with us, to never leave us, forsake us by your spirit. And so even in those dark, dark moments, we are thankful to not be forsaken, but to be forgiven and justified and adopted and to even call you father is a great blessing and ministry of your spirits. And so I pray that you'll help us to grow today. You help us to grow in our awareness of the spirit's ministry. You'll help us to grow in our dependence upon his power, not our own strength or wit or social standing or lack thereof but to know that we are an empowered people by your spirit. Pray that you will bring about a deeper sense of maintenance toward the unity of the spirit. Father, help us to be slow to speak, quick to listen. I pray that you will help us to engage not only in the conversations that we talked about today where there was so much relevance to this week, but in any conversation where we would be unified around the fact that all have been baptized into one spirit and all are working toward the ultimate and supreme glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and we pray that he will come quickly. And in the days between, I pray that by your spirit you will help us to accomplish the work that you have set before us to do. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.